So it is two weeks ago now, but you remember the story of David and Goliath? And you might think to yourself that having slain a nine and a half foot giant, having led the men of Israel in a a rampage through the ranks of the Philistines, this enemy, age-old enemy so thoroughly defeated that David's troubles would now be over. But as we read into this chapter, we discover exactly the opposite. That David's troubles were really only beginning. And the biggest threat to his life would not come from the hand of some spear or sword-wielding giant in front of him. But would come from within the camp. From an enemy seated on the throne behind him. And as we walk through this chapter, three simple headings, all beginning with L, I I want you to think about loyalty, loathing, and love. Loyalty, loathing, and love. Loyalty, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, it might seem to you from this text that surely I could have put the word love in at this point. It's very clear that Jonathan had a deep love for David. It's expressed numerous times in these verses. Indeed, such is the case that many people as they read this, particularly in our modern day of sexual license, believe that these two men were engaged in a homosexual relationship. Some people have attempted to take the words that David sang at the death of Jonathan recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 1 as evidence toward this. There David sang, Jonathan, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And they say, well, obviously God knew all about this relationship and obviously God approved it for he elevated David to the throne. But I think if we look very carefully at what really is happening here, it puts that possibility completely aside. But in this week, when another prominent TV presenter has been applauded by the world for coming out as gay, we need to remember Paul's stark words. I read them at the start of our time together. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying that, you know, there are believers who begin their walk with Christ in those situations. They are waist deep in the practice of serious sin. And and these sins are not all sexual sins. Greed is in there. Swindling is in there. But... That might be a beginning point, but it is not where people remain. 
He or she experiences the washing, the cleansing, the renewing, the sanctifying by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is going on in this relationship, this friendship between Jonathan and David? Now, I I confess that, you know, when I read this growing up and read this story for years, you know, we thought, well, isn't it it just natural two young men would, would, would be buddies together? Dave and Johnny shooting the breeze. They had so much in common. They were young men, young warriors. They they, they had this great passion to go out into battle, to uh, these great adventurous exploits against the Philistines. But that image is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Because what we're not really obviously told in the story is that by this time... Saul was now a very old man. And he had been on the throne for a very long time. He was around about in his 70s. Which in those days was very old. I know around here it's very young. But in those days it was very old. And by that time Jonathan would be 50. Which is really over the hill. Jonathan was in his 50s. And David would just have been 20. Can you imagine this poor crown prince, Jonathan, age 50, having to hang around all that long, waiting that someday maybe he would get his goal on the throne. It's hard to picture that, isn't it? But that's what was happening. Jonathan is a mature man, growing beyond middle age. And David is just coming out of boyhood. And as you think about that dramatic age difference, it does help to change the mental picture of what is happening in the interaction between the two men. And Jonathan expresses loyalty to David. And he does it in in two ways. He does it by covenant making and clothing taking. Covenant making and clothing taking. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, the Hebrew word for covenant is berits, which means to cut, because that concept in covenant making was a cutting of animals. So whenever, as we see in Genesis 15, God wanted to make a covenant with Abraham, God instructed Abraham to take animals, to uh, cut them in two, and to lay them out in a little uh, alleyway that, that they could walk between, and the partners in the covenant would pass between the slaughtered animals with the idea being that if you betray me or if I betray you, we end up like these animals at our feet. But of course, that didn't happen in Genesis 15. Because the, the presence and power of God in those moments brought a great weight bearing down on Abraham and he slept. And it was a, a flaming torch and a fiery brazier that passed between the sacrificial animals. Because the price that would be paid for the faithlessness of men would not be paid by a man. At least not by an ordinary man, but by Jesus. For Abraham's unfaithfulness and his descendants' unfaithfulness, Jesus would be torn in two on the cross for our sins. So this act of loyalty, this covenant is cut between the two, between Jonathan and David. There is covenant making and there is clothing taking, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. 
Now again, it's important if you've got a Bible to have it open here. And if you look over into chapter 17, you see something that's quite similar, but, but a different outcome. Saul tried to clothe David with his armor, helmet of bronze, coat of mail, strapped his sword, but David rejected Saul's gifts. He refused to accept the clothing, weaponry, armor of the king. And yet here, when he's offered the clothing, the armor, the weaponry of the crown prince, he takes it. He takes it. Now this is just not some sort of swapping shirts after the game motif. What is happening here is a significant theological statement. You know when Hamlet Shakespeare said, clothes maketh the man. Or as Mark Twain penned, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. And here we see that what Jonathan wore was the crown prince's robe and armor. It marked him out as the heir to the throne. It wasn't just like everybody else wore it. It was special. It was significant. He was the one by his attire who would succeed his father. And amazingly, God spoke into Jonathan's heart. And he's prepared to give up his place. He's prepared to acknowledge David as the rightful heir to the throne. This is such a beautiful act of humble devotion and self-sacrifice. In a heavyweight four-volume study entitled Promise and Deliverance, scholar S.G. DeGraff comments, This deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against Christ, who is truly Israel's king. As we reflect on the the challenges of, of, of this first title of loyalty, of covenant loyalty, we've got to examine our hearts to ask, are we Faithful to our king. When others might malign him, take his name in vain, or speak ill of him, would you speak up to defend him, as we'll see Jonathan do for David within just a few moments, or in in our few weeks in our study? And are you actively yielding the right to rule in your life to Jesus, who is the true king? Loyalty. Loyalty then, loathing. In William Tyndale's version of the Bible, which was a forerunner to the King James, uh, he, he renders Genesis 39 and verse 2 like this. He said, God was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. And, and, and you know the story of Joseph. I've been reading that uh, these past mornings. And, and everywhere that Joseph went, he succeeded. And we see exactly the same pattern followed by David. In everything he did, he did it well, and everybody loved him. Well, almost everybody. Saul, now without the presence and power of God at work in his heart, by the Spirit of God, he gave in to jealousy. And he sought to take David's life. And we see this particularly uh, sparked in him by the song of Verse 7, 
and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now we need to understand that the construction of this song in the Hebrew language was not designed to insult Saul. The Hebrew language, especially in its poetry, is filled with with what are called parallelisms. And and there's lots of different, quite a lot of different types of parallelism. There's synonymous parallelism, where a a, a phrase or idea is repeated in, in the second clause of the verse with only a slight alteration. Well, there's synthetic parallelism, where the second clause completes and indeed expands the first clause. There will not be a test, so don't fret. But we see examples of this. So there in Proverbs chapter 3, 13, we read, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. So the writer of the proverb says the same thing, slightly different each time, but adding to it, helping us to see uh, the the core of his message. And even in 1 Samuel, just turn back to the 1 Samuel 15. And there Samuel, the prophet, is speaking. We read 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of ram. So it's repetition for encouragement. Not just ministers today who repeat. So you say the same thing for emphasis, and Saul and David were not being compared in this little song. Rather, together they were being commended for their part in this great victory. But because of Saul's heart, because of the sensitivity of his nature, because uh, he was focused in on himself, he sees this as a slight. And don't we know that to be true? Maybe you know someone and you can say a hundred things to them and they just brush it off and then you say one thing to them and they explode because it's a bad day and they were feeling down and, and it was just too much for them to take. Saul has had a big, long, bad day since God's spirit left him. And this message is too hard for him to take. Deal Ralph Davis in his commentary says, He analyzed the lyrics and decided the girls might best use their talents on a dirge for a funeral in Bethlehem. Saul is upset. He loathes David and desires him to die. Verses 10 to 11, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did, day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now we must understand that envy or jealousy is a fissure in the human heart through which Satan can strike to his own advantage, his own destructive advantage. Saul's rage becomes murderous. 
And we have to be conscious of the, the, the seeds of envy that, that grow in our own hearts. Because as human beings we are prone to envy. You know the idea. You buy a new car, it's a lovely new car. You really like your new car, it keeps you happy. And then Andrew buys a better car, a bigger car, with more gadgets on his car, more expensive car. And jealousy grips your heart. You no longer like your car. You wish you had Andrew's car, and it looks so much better than your car. And then you start to pray that I hope that someday as he's reversing out of the drive, he catches it on the gatepost. That'll stick him up. You know what? That's what happens in our heart. When jealousy takes over, it corrupts us deeply. William J. Bennett has a little book. It's called The Book of Virtue. And in it, he tells this little story. Once, a leopard cub strayed from his home and ventured into the midst of a great herd of elephants. His mother and father had warned him to stay out of the way of the giant beasts, but he did not listen. Suddenly, the elephants began to stampede. And one of them stamped on the cub without even knowing it. Soon afterwards, a hyena found his body and went to tell his parents. I have terrible news for you, he said. I found your son lying dead in the field. The mother and the father leopard gave great cries of grief and rage. How did this happen? The father demanded. Tell me, who did this to our son? I will never rest until I have my revenge. The elephants did it, said the hyena. The elephants, said the father leopard, quite startled. You say it was the elephants? Yes, said the hyena. I saw their tracks. The hyena strolled back and forward, growling, shaking his head. No, you were wrong, he said at last. It was not the elephants. It was the goats. The goats murdered my boy. And at once he bounded down the hill, sprang upon a herd of goats, grazing in the valley below, and in a violent rage, killed as many as he could in revenge. You see, this is what happens when jealousy takes our heart. It blurs our vision to the truth. It causes us to believe whatever we want to believe. And to choose to strike back against whatever, whoever we want to strike back. Particularly the one most in reach and uh, easily in reach and the nearest target. And we must understand it was God who acted against Saul. God withdrew his spirit from him. But, but Saul couldn't strike back against God. So he picks the nearest available target, David, the shepherd boy. And we again have to understand that beyond the madness of this choice and this irrational behavior, that it all came down to the fact that in the past, when God had set his word and purposes and plans before Saul, he rejected them. He had set himself to disobey God's word. And the poison in his heart here, directed so violently towards David, had already captured him when he chose his own desires over God's. You see, jealousy reveals for us what we love the most. And we note that Saul steadily grows to hate more and more the Messiah. The anointed one, David, because of his love of self. 
loyalty, loathing, and finally, love, verses 20 and 21. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. David will enter into what uh, Paul Tripp calls a marriage of inconvenience. There's a scheme brewing in Saul's mind. A simple one, a, a, a logical reasoning. That if David fought the Philistines long enough, eventually both the law of averages and some Philistine spear or sword will be sure to catch up with him. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular here. Let me make that clear. But but I know in families, sometimes there's a bit of tension with in-law. Not maybe not in your perfect families. But, But here's a significant problem. That Saul's intention is to make his daughter a widow before her wedding day. And let's not go into too many details about the ghoulish bride price that Saul requires. But we have already noted, we have uh, gleaned in our study along the way that both first Jonathan and then David, when they refer to the Philistines, use that phrase, the, the uncircumcised, those who are without, devoid of the protection of the covenant-keeping God. It seems strange in light of that, that David is then applied, or sent to apply the seal of the covenant to a hundred from the, among the ranks of their arch enemies. But of course we understand the import of this. It was quite clear that these men would not come. They would not willingly submit to circumcision. They will not come and place themselves under Yahweh's protecting power. And there's only one alternative to that. Consequently, they must die. Place yourself under God's covenant care or die eternally. That choice remains the same today. To come to Christ is to choose life. To reject Christ is to choose death. I spoke with a man on Friday about the issue of salvation. And I asked him, do you want to be saved? And he said, yes. Did he want to accept Jesus as a Savior? And he said, yes. And we prayed together. And when it came to that moment to confess his sin and invite Jesus to be a Savior, he stopped short. He couldn't go ahead. He couldn't place himself under the the covenant care of the living God. And let me say, these are the toughest times in ministry. The rest of the stuff is easy in comparison with when you present the gospel often to dying people and they harden their heart and turn away from it. I had a friend in, in my time in Rathcool. Uh, his name was Tom. Apparently he was fabulously wealthy. He showed to me some traits of that in that he would arrive outside my house, little house in Rathcool in his hand-painted Jaguar. Now he, he would claim to have over a million pounds but uh, when he went into my house he at everything that we had in the cupboards. He had this money, but he never seemed to manage to eat. 
But, but, but the real hunger in Tom's life was a hunger in his heart. He knew about Jesus. He needed to be saved. He, he wanted to be saved. But the cost would be too great for him. His wealth had been obtained through illegal means. And he understood that becoming a Christian while freeing him of the guilt of his sin, it would lead to his imprisonment for his crime. I spoke to him often, many times. He came to church regularly. But on our last conversation, that price remained too high for him to pay. You place yourself under God's covenant care or you perish. 3,000 years ago, in the Middle East, as still today, there's a shame and honor culture. Honor is a hugely important thing and you have to honor those to whom honor is due. And David has set this amazing challenge. He is to honor Saul with this presentation of 100 Philistine foreskins. And although he is thoroughly undeserving, David gives double honor to the king. Twice what had been requested. Verses 28-29, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Everyone loved David. He was the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the true king. And Saul made his choice. He had a clear, defined decision that he would not submit to the purposes of God. He would not yield to God's true king. He would oppose David. He would kill David should that opportunity present itself. Loyalty, loathing, love. Loyalty. Our greatest hope is not in the loyalty of our friends, praise God for them, but in the one, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, as Proverbs 18, 24 reminds us. The ever faithful God who, who never feels, who never lets anyone down, who submits themselves in allegiance to him. Loathing. And you confess before God that at times your heart is crushed by jealousy. You wish what others, you had what others had. Not usually not material things, but their popularity, their gifts, their talent. And we need to preach to ourselves again and again the gospel which sets us free. That we know our worth not in our possessions. Not in our popularity, but in the fact that God so loved us that he gave his son to save us. And once we know that, and when we remind ourselves of that, that's all we need. There's no place for envy in such a heart. And love. We think again of the bride price. What did Jesus do to make us his bride? As we saw this morning here at the table, what did Jesus do that we would belong to him and be with him forever? The precious blood of the sacrifice was shed for us. He was torn in two that we might be forgiven. 
he died that we might live. The greatest love the world might ever know. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on the lessons of this chapter, we thank you that we see a beautiful picture of loyalty and friendship in Jonathan and David. We thank you, Lord, for speaking into Jonathan's heart and for showing him your purposes that he would yield to them, that he would give the rightful place, the way to the throne and open it up for David to walk in it. Lord, we realize the spiritual application for us, that you need to be the one who rules. Any attempt of ourselves to hold the throne of our own hearts is self-destructive and ultimately damning. So Lord, we need to give you your rightful place. As the old hymn says, the dearest idol, I have known whate'er that idol be. Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Lord, crush any envy, any jealousy that mars our days. Teach us again the true value, what really lasts and what is of true worth. That you would love us and claim us as yours. We have no greater gift, nor will we in all of eternity. And you have loved us well. You have paid a bride price for us in your blood. May we know that we are yours until we see you face to face and then worship around your throne forever. Amen.